0: pray together. Father, why should we gain? We have no answer, and so we can only conclude grace. Thank you for this gospel that has paid our ransom, brought us back into your loving arms. We give you praise and honor and glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So Missions Month this year then has had the theme of redeeming poverty. And we started in our first week by thinking of this idea of poverty and trying to expand our understanding or expand our our definition of it to realize that, yes, poverty is a material thing, but that its consequences are more far-reaching than that, that we experience poverty with God, poverty with ourselves, poverty with others, even poverty with the rest of creation. Last week then, Randy Neighbors came and spoke to us on the theme of of poverty with self and, and challenged us to consider whether we really are poor in spirit or if the trappings of contemporary life have fooled us into thinking that we're not in desperate need of Jesus Christ. Missions Month continued last night with a, a missions dinner that was unlike any other missions dinner because we didn't give a lot of people dinner. Now, let me explain that in case you weren't there. Uh, as you arrived, you were given a, a token, and there were three of them. Uh, those who were given a, a white token, 15% of those who were given a, arrived were given a white token, and they went and sat at nice tables with nice tablecloths, and they were given a very nice dinner. 35% of those who showed up were given a red token and they were told to go and sit in chairs and they were brought paper plates with some beans and rice and some plastic, uh, plastic fork. Then the remaining 50% were told as they arrived to McLean Presbyterian Church, go sit on the floor over there. Go sit on the floor and then we'll bring you a little bit of rice. And we won't bring you any kind of fork. What were we doing? Of course, we were looking at these percentages that mirror the reality of our world. 15% who have more than they could ever use. 35% who make it by, but often at the margins. And then the remaining 50% or more who struggle on a daily basis, literally for their daily bread. How great it was to see our flock respond to this as they showed up hungry on a Saturday evening. A great atmosphere and and time together to reflect upon these things. This morning we continue then uh, with our, our missions month by inviting uh, Russ Whitfield to come to the pulpit. Russ, if you would uh, come on up, he is going to come and preach, focusing on this idea of, of poverty with others. And as we introduce Russ, I'm going to ask him three questions, and I've asked him to answer in 140 characters or less. Okay? So, number one, Russ, tell us, uh, where, where were you when you came to Christ?
1: I was a student at New York University and came to faith on campus there. Hashtag praise the Lord.
0: Okay. And uh, tell us, uh, what, is it, what is it that you do now?
1: I am the church planter and pastor of Grace Mosaic in Washington, D.C. Uh, hashtag pray for us.
0: Yeah. Now, Grace Mosaic is great. We have a huge heart for them because they were planted out of Grace DC, a church that MPC planted. So uh, that congregation, and Russ is kind of one of our grandbabies. Okay, he's a big baby over here. Uh, but we have a, a great affection and affinity for, for their work. And uh, thirdly, when you are um, not planting a church, what do, you, what do you do? What do you...
1: I barbecue in my backyard and play in my R&B band. Hashtag holy smoke.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> Let me pray for Russ. Russ is such a, a blessing to us. Uh, Lord, we're so glad that you've, you've brought him here this morning and uh, just allowed us to share in kingdom work together. What a What a blessing that is. But, Father, we... Don't boast in any gifts, and any power, and any wisdom. We boast only in Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that as Russ preaches, uh, he would uh, make much of Christ in his own heart and that that would just overflow, spill out unto all that are here and that we would be attentive as we listen, engaged, ready, eager to hear your voice, the prompting of your spirit as Russ brings your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We're grateful in Christ's name. Amen. amen. Good morning, family. Good
1: morning. I bring you greetings from your grandbaby, Grace Mosaic. Uh, the first thing I want to say is a big, huge thank you from myself and from our community for your generous and kind support of our community i it's a blessing to us, and, and God is showing off in our midst, and we know that you have been a powerful instrument of what's happening in our midst. So I am really grateful for you, and so is our community, and they they send their love along, and hope you feel that, and we feel your love uh, very much. So before uh, I came up here, uh, the Reverend James Forsyth told me that I should not preach this sermon as if I've preached to already. But to preach as if Jesus is coming back tomorrow, I'm going to try and do that. I don't know what that means for y'all, but I'm going to try and give it, give it my best. So if you would, turn with me to the book of 2 Samuel, uh, chapter 9 of 2 Samuel. And you can find this uh, on page 260 of your pew bullet, pew Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 9. And this is God's word. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Makir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Makir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant. And said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that right now you would do a great work in our hearts by your Spirit's power. We thank you that you are pleased to feed your people. And so God, I pray that you take my five loaves and two fish and do just that. I pray that you would equip us to love our place and to love you more deeply as a result of this time together in your word. Pray this blessing and ask this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Before the Lord called me into ministry, I was in show business. And when I was training for show business, one of the things they taught us how to do was to engage a script. And the whole goal of the thing was was to make the story in the script come alive before the audience. The goal was that this script would come to life not only within us as individuals, but among us as a cast. in the script gives you everything that you need. It tells you what the plot is. It tells you the tensions. It tells you what kind of character you're supposed to be in that story. It tells you how you're to move, how you're to think. It tells you how you're supposed to relate to the people around you. And the goal, when you would get the, when you would get the script, when you were cast in a show, you would dig into the script. And the whole goal was this. You get into the script so that the script gets into you. You want that thing to get so into you, to become such a part of you and such a part of the cast that you offer the most beautiful, compelling, and convincing portrayal of what that story is really about. And I remember when I was cast in a show, and we were doing all-day rehearsals with the director, and, and the director stopped us at one point as we were rehearsing this scene, and he said, look, here, let's stop, stop, stop. He was frustrated. He said... You guys have memorized your lines, you're doing all of the blocking, you're going through all of the right motions, but you're not connecting with us out here because you're not connecting with the script. It's just, the script has not come alive within you, and it has not come alive among you. And you, look, we will not care out here until that script comes alive up there. And my friends, when we hear something like that, we're reminded of what life within God's church is supposed to be like. The reality is that we have been given the best script of the best story that has ever been written. When God gave us his scriptures... He gave us the the very story that's supposed to come alive, not only within us, but also among us as a community. This is the story that tells us what kind of characters we're supposed to be. This story tells us how we're to think, how we're to move, how we're to live, and how we're to relate to one another. And one of the reasons why we fail to connect with the people of our place is because we're not connecting to the story. We're not connecting to the script. Maybe we've memorized our lines. Maybe we've memorized our blocking. But the story has not yet come alive within us and among us. But God's goal is that within our community and among us and within us as individuals, we will connect to the script. We will connect with one another. And then we will be able to be a vessel of connecting outsiders to the kingdom. That's what God is planning to do among us as a church. So this morning, I want us... To, to, to connect with the script. That's what I want us to do. Because connecting with the script is the way in which we overcome our poverty toward others. It's connecting with this story, connecting with this good news. So we're going to approach this passage through two points this morning. We're going to see a royal invitation and a royal restoration. I can't help but alliterate, I grew up in a black church. You're going to get some alliteration, all right? That's how it is, all right? So, let's look at our first point where we see a royal invitation. Look at your neighbor and tell them a royal invitation. invitation. All right. I told the the first two services, you know, just to give you a little primer. You know, I grew up in the Baptist church, and in the Baptist church, you say amen. Amen is amen. In the Presbyterian church, the Presbyterian amen is "Mm." (laughs) mmm. So, if I hear some of that... I will know that you're tracking with me and giving me a little feedback, all right? A royal invitation. Now, at this point in his life, David is the, he is the conquering king over all of Israel. He has put down all of his enemies on the outside. He has taken them out one by one, and he has secured his place. He's the undisputed king of Israel. And anyone that was a part of that community at that time, they knew that after David put down his his enemies around him, the next step would then be to get rid of any lack of faithfulness within his nation. He would be looking for enemies within Israel to make sure that he dealt with them swiftly. And everyone in that cultural context knew that the, the family of the outgoing king they were the number one target. They were the most likely to be unfaithful to the new king. They were the most likely to create a rebellion or an uprising in the in the nation. And so it was it was part of the ancient Near Eastern context, part of that cultural context, that they would deal with anybody within the house of the previous king by putting them to death. That was a common thing in that cultural context. It was it was a self-protective measure for every new king to think on these on these terms. Anyone at that time, from the house of Saul, would have known that they had a target on their back because they would be the most likely to reject David's kingship. It would be savvy for David to take care of these internal enemies. But it's at this point that we see a shocking reversal in this text. It went against all convention. It was counter-cultural. It was completely surprising and unexpected. Any other king would have asked his counselors... Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may put them to death? Is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I might eliminate them? But David shows that he's not like other kings. Because when you look at verse 1, you see that he asks a very different question. David says, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, David remembered a covenant, a promise that he made years and years ago with one he loved as his own soul. And it was on the basis of this covenant that he decided to show mercy and grace and kindness to his enemies. It was on this basis that he sets out to show kindness where he could have brought down the sword. From the very start, we see that this story is a story of self-giving, not self-indulgence. This is a story of self-sacrifice, not not self-interest. In this story, we see that the king is not looking for excuses. He's looking for an opportunity to show the covenant love of a promise. And if if you look at the context here, right? Mephibosheth was not looking for the king. But when Mephibosheth wasn't looking for the king, the king was looking for him. This is the house of Saul, y'all. I didn't mean to make that rhyme, but that's his black church coming out naturally, all right? This is the house of Saul. This is the family that tried to wipe David off the map. They're the ones that pursued him like a dog to try and eliminate him. This is the man who heaved a spear at him while he was playing him some calming music. Trying to pierce him through. This is the house that David is trying to show kindness to. And in verse 3, we see an additional layer. David asks a servant, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? He He wants to show off that covenant commitment to his dearly loved one Jonathan, who is now gone, but he also wants to show the covenant love of God and put that on display. Now look, this word translated kindness, all you theologues know the word, Hebrew word chesed, which is covenant love. It's the love that's used to describe the the covenant commitment of God to his people from ages past, from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the promise of God that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. He wants to show off the commitment of God, the grace that is greater than all our sins. He wants to put this on display to the house of Saul. He wants to show the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, as Sally Lloyd-Jones would put it. He doesn't just want to remain faithful to his covenant with Jonathan. He wants to put the covenant love of the Father on display. Everybody knew that the house of Saul tried to track David down to kill him, but here David's going to track down the house of Saul in order to extend them love. This is a different kind of story. And when this servant of the house of Saul, this man named Ziba, and by the way, parents, if you're looking for any new names for unborn children, Ziba, scratch that one off. We're going to see this and don't work. All right. This man, Ziba, is brought in and, and David asks him a question. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to them? And Ziba mentions this one son of Jonathan, but he doesn't mention him by name. He mentions him by his disability. Oh, there's one. He's crippled in his feet. And it was Ziba's way of saying, King, there's one, but he's not worth your time. He's not worth the effort, oh king. You've got better things to do than fool around with lame-legged people like him. Don't, don't waste your time. He can't do anything to you, O king, and he can't do anything for you. You might as well just forget about him. But David isn't interested in dealing with this man based upon what he can do to him. And he's not interested in dealing with this man based upon what he can do for him. He's interested in showing off the covenant love of God. He reaches out because of covenant love. And when the servants retrieve Mephibosheth from the outskirts of the land, from this place called Lodabar, which means no thing or no word, when they bring him before David, David extends a royal invitation to a royal restoration, which brings us to our second point where we see a royal restoration. Look at your neighbor and tell him a royal restoration. restoration. Now look, in verses 6 through 8, the king calls Mephibosheth by name, he names the man. He calms his fears. He tells them that he's, he he's going to pour out this immense inheritance on him. And then he says, and you're going to eat at my table always. You're going to eat at my table always. Verses 11 through 13 are a summary by the narrator saying, So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. He lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Like one of the king's sons, that should strike us. Because we know the status that this man should have had before David... But David gives him a transfer in status. He goes from enemy to one treated as a son. He goes from poor living off of the resources of of someone else's kindness to, to living off of the resources of the king. Everything about his life is transformed because the king moves toward him with this royal invitation to a royal restoration. And the people of Israel would have looked at this thing and said, What kind of king is this? What kind of king calms the fears of his enemy? What kind of king lavishes an inheritance on his enemies? What kind of king tells his enemies to come and feast at his table like sons? This picture that the people of Israel were witnessing was just a faint glimmer of what we have in full measure on this side of the cross. Because this story is about more than King David and Mephibosheth. This story is really about King Jesus in us. From the pulpit to the pew, we are a bunch of Mephibosheths. And we need to understand how the king deals with us. Because that is the key to every bit of transformation in our lives. This story is about a king who is the king over all the earth, over all of creation. And we could have expected him to execute the people who had loyalties. To another, who wanted him gone, those who didn't want his kingship, those who wanted to hold the reins of their own lives and call their own shots, those uber-competent people who were so caught up with their good gifts that they missed the good news. We could have expected the sword to fall on us. In our sin, we rejected his kingship. We didn't want anything to do with King Jesus. And the reality is that there should only be four chapters in the Bible Genesis 4 should say, Then God blew everything up and lived happily ever after. The end. But the fact that we have a continuation of the story all the way to a new heavens and a new earth shows you that this is not any ordinary king. This is a king who's about a completely different plan. A king who draws near. A king who lavishes grace. A king who extends mercy. A king who makes enemies into friends. A king that's about filling up the empty and healing the broken and restoring what has been lost with better than it was ever in possession to begin with. This is a different kind of king. We could have expected this great king to ask a question after Genesis 3. Is there anyone left that I may destroy them? Is there anyone left that I might execute them? But that's not the question that he asks. He asks a question. How deep is my love for them? Let me show you in an incarnation. Let me show you as the king of glory steps off of his throne to ride a donkey all the way to glory, to take on a cross, to taste death, to take it down to the grave, and then to rise again, to slap a vacancy sign on the tomb and to say, all power has been given unto me. Power over what? Pick something. That's good news. It's good news about our king. He's not like other kings. He remembers a divine commitment, a promise that he made long ago with his father that he would enter into this broken world in order to bring healing to spiritual lame people like us. This king is about self-giving over self-interest. He's about self-sacrifice over self-indulgence. He's not looking for excuses. He's looking for opportunities to bless us and to show us his kindness. This love was unprompted. We weren't even looking for it. But when we weren't looking for the king, the king was looking for us. He shows covenant love to people who wanted him gone, who wanted him dead. King David dodged the spear, but Jesus knew he had to be pierced for our transgressions. And he gladly went to that cross to experience that fate. He doesn't reach down because of what we could. He doesn't come down because of what we could do to him. He doesn't reach out to us because of what we can do for him. He does everything that he does because of covenant love. Because of the promise of his love. He calls us by name. He calms our fears. He pours out on us an inheritance that's imperishable, unfading, kept in glory for us. And he tells us, you shall eat at my table like my sons eat at my table as my sons and daughters I know that you're lame but swing and hide your lame feet underneath my table and act like one of my children I will I will take responsibility for sustaining you and fulfilling your joy and filling you up with every good and perfect gift I'll take responsibility for you when we were at our worst God gave us his best and that is good news That is good news for broken people. And just when we think we have Jesus figured out, all our Reformed theology, we've accepted John Calvin into our heart, and when we read a chapter a day to keep the devil away, just when we think we have this whole thing figured out, we encounter those moments where the gospel breaks upon our souls, and we get this new vision into what it is he has accomplished at the cross, and we say, what kind of king would call someone like me into his kingdom? What kind of king would call someone like me to his table to set the riches of his love upon me, to make me a son and a daughter in the faith. What kind of king is this? And when this good news breaks upon your soul, it does a work of transformation in your life. You know that you don't have to be afraid about what people can do to you. You don't have to deal with people based upon what they can do for you. Dealing with people based upon what they can do for you is not showing kindness. It's doing business. God is about the, he's about the work of extending the same kindness. When this, when this begins to dawn on you, the magnitude of what it is that God has done in Christ, the welcome that he has extended to you, well, that makes you the kind of person that wants to welcome people and invite people into your into your life, into your home, into your into your small groups, into this church, and, and eventually into the kingdom of God. It makes you the kind of person that longs for that. To extend and adorn that welcome of the gospel in the way in which you relate to the people around you. Your coworkers, your neighbors, they need to know that the King of Kings extends a, a standing dinner invitation to them, that they are welcome. We need to be a kind of people that's creating on ramps for people to get on the spiritual journey, to, to, to see who this Jesus is. Who is this King of glory? Who is this? So look, we need to repent. Of the ways in which we have betrayed the welcome of God in our lives. The ways in which we have failed to, to communicate his invitation. And I'm not just talking about evangelism. I'm talking about disposition. I'm talking about the impulse of our souls and the way that we perceive other people. We need to repent of having the spirit of Zeba, Where we look at certain people and we, eh, they're not worth your time. They're not worth my time. God, they're, not, they're just a waste of time. They're not really worth it. And God's looking at us like, do you think I brought you into my kingdom because you are impressive? I am not impressed with you. I don't care how many letters you got behind your name. I don't care how many zeros you got in your bank account. I am not impressed with you, but I'm impressed with my son. And if you trust in him, I'll receive you as as my very own child. There is no one that is outside of the boundaries of being redeemed. We are exhibit A. There is no one who's too far off that God cannot bring them near. There's no one who's too broken that they cannot be healed. There's no one who's too estranged that cannot be made into family. We trust in the power of the gospel that Romans tells us is the power of God unto salvation. The power that can overcome any hardness of heart. The power that can overcome any addiction. The power that can overcome any amount of depression and and frustration in life. Any amount of failure... That's the power that we have. That's the power that God wants to unleash in our lives as we lean in in faith to what it is he has accomplished in Jesus. We don't deal with the people who, you know, seem to be worth our time, right? Because if God only dealt with the people who are worth his time, there'd be three people at his dinner table. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the reality of it. We got to pray this message into our souls so that we, we just... I want to connect people. I want to extend welcome to people. I'm going to use my words to bless people. I'm not going to pass up on opportunities to encourage. I'm not, I'm not going to let the opportunities fly by me, right? It's, it's actually more 101 than you think. And I'm not really a, I think what's more important than prescribing particular acts for us to do is, is getting this story into our souls. Because when this story gets into your soul, the spirit will... It'll, he'll lead you. He'll lead you into the courses of action that you need to take with the particular people in your life that you need to connect with. They need to know about this invitation to restoration. And we have to listen to our place. Listen to this place. In what ways do the people of this place feel alienated from the church, from spirituality? What pe- how do people feel alienated from, from Jesus? And in what ways does the gospel uniquely speak to the particular alienation that that people group is experiencing. The thing that will transform a crowd into a community is the gospel of welcome, right? Just because you got a bunch of people together doesn't mean you have a community. The gospel makes crowds into communities, right? That, into a family, right? And that's the beauty of what God's already doing here in your midst. I can feel it. We, ex- I'm experiencing the beauty of your community, but let's keep on Pressing. Let's keep on pressing toward the mark of the upward calling, to adorn the gospel in every single opportunity that we have. Let's listen to the place, and let's have faith that God can redeem anybody, and God can use even small things in order to do great work. And again, we're Exhibit A of that, all right? But let me close with this story. There is a story told of uh, a young man who, who was from East Texas, and he went off to fight in the Vietnam War, and. when he was in the Vietnam War, he was badly injured. He lost limbs. He was, he was badly scarred up on his face. He, he took a lot of damage uh, during his service in the military. And the time came for him to go home. And he wrote a letter home to his, his parents. And he said, Mom and Dad, um, I want to come home, but there's something you need to know. I've been badly injured. I've been disfigured. I've been maimed. I've lost limbs. And I'm, I'm not... I'm not whole. And I, I can understand if you wouldn't want me to come back. I could understand if it'd be just too much for you to bear. And so how about we work it like this? I'm going to take the train home next week. And, it, and if you want me to come home, you hang a yellow ribbon up in the oak tree by the train station. And if I see that yellow ribbon, I'll know that you want me to come home. And if I come up to that tree and I, and I don't see the yellow ribbon, I'll just keep on going by, I'll understand. And you can imagine the young man's shock when the train rounded the bend and he looked out over the field to the oak tree and it was covered with yellow ribbons and the train station was covered with yellow ribbons and the conductor was covered with yellow ribbons as if to say there is no amount of brokenness in your life that would cause us to turn you away. Our welcome is a standing welcome. You are our child, beloved, and there's no amount of brokenness that you could undergo that would cause us to give up on you. Come home. Come home. And what's even more amazing in the gospel is that it's not yellow ribbons hanging in the tree to demonstrate God's welcome to us. It's his own son hanging on the tree, letting us know that there's no amount of brokenness. There's no amount of scarring or failure in our lives that would cause him to push us away when we come near to him in our brokenness. He is able to save. He's mighty to save. He rejoices over us with singing. That is the good news. We are not fit except by our need. It's our very need that qualifies us to experience that welcome. And so let's be a community in which this story resonates. Let this story resonate in your soul as an individual. Let this story resonate among us as a community so that we can extend that welcome. And so that God may grow this community in all of the right ways, continue to Complete that work that he started in you as a missional community, a community where sinners are welcome, a community that's showing off the glory of God's grace. Make it so, Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you that when we weren't looking for you, you were looking for us. We thank you that when we were at our worst, you poured out your best. We thank you, God, for all of the treasure that is stored up in the gospel, dispensed into our lives. We thank you, King Jesus, that you're the kind of king who calls his enemies friends and brings them near and treats them as sons and daughters. Lord, let this message, this good news, mark our souls in all of the right ways so that we are characterized as a people that's in touch with how much we need grace and a community that is all about extending that grace in every way possible. I pray this for my friends and family here at MPC. I pray that you would fill their cup and that you would help them to to be a blessing to their place. We pray these things and ask for them in Jesus' name. Amen.